0: Welcome to Glam City, a show that delves into the world of Sydney's glam sector. That's galleries, libraries, archives and museums. We'll be back in 2019 with fresh voices, some big new ideas and new stories from the glam sector. But in the meantime, we're delving back into our archives and looking back at some of our favourite stories. On this episode of Glam City, we are going to be speaking with Ariel Gamble. Hello, Ariel. Hello. Ariel is a graphic designer, an art director, an illustrator who is based in Sydney, and she has put together an exhibition of work you're not likely to see anywhere else. So, welcome. Um, Ariel, along with your collaborator, Daniel New, you've re- recently launched an exhibition. Can you tell us what it's called and where it is? And Absolutely.
1: It um, so the exhibition is called All We Can't See, Illustrating the Nauru Files. Um, it's a, collector, a collection of works by 33 leading Australian artists, each illustrating one of the Nauru Files. There are, is an amazing collection of
2: artists who've uh, volunteered their time and expertise yeah. to do this. Um, can you take us back before we look at some of the artworks themselves? Can you tell us what are the Nauru Files and why sure. they're important to, to sure. thinking about?
1: Um, So the Nauru files are over 2,000 leaked incident reports from Nauru Detention Centre and they take place between 2013 and 2015. They were leaked to The Guardian and published in August 2016. What they show us are over 2,000 stories documenting day-to-day life on Nauru. And disturbingly, a lot of these stories involve assault, sexual abuse, self-harm, child abuse, sex abuse they show us the human cost of Australia's offshore processing policies. And for Daniel and I, the creators behind this, once we read them, we couldn't let ourselves forget them. And that's that spurred this project into being, I suppose, mm. yeah.
2: They are very moving historical documents and archives yeah. in a way, aren't they? And it's very hard, you know, a lot of... Some people say when they go into an archive and they read sort of material which is incredibly emotionally... Um, Dense. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard going, and it's really hard going reading these. Yeah. Um, what what prompted you to think of a creative response to them rather than literally just reading them and feeling in despair?
1: Well, Daniel and I our backgrounds are book designers, so our you know way of working in the world is taking stories um, and using using imagery to connect people to stories, and sometimes really difficult stories. And we saw these files. Um, people had heard about the files, but we didn't feel a lot of people had actually sat down and read individual human stories in each one. You know, they knew they were bad, but they didn't really know. Uh, They hadn't spent all that much time with them. But once you do read them, I don't think you can forget them, like we Mm. said. So we saw a brief, basically. And we thought, well, here are stories that need to be humanised, need to be individualised. Can we use the immediacy of visual language to connect people like like with a book cover, how do we get people to pick them up off the shelf and open them up and engage? Yeah. And what what can art
0: do and visual representation do that words can't
1: do? It can speak directly to shared humanity. I think you know it's whether it's art or music, and it's immediate. It's not something it's speaking to our subconscious. It's not something that we can analyze or. It's just speaking to our hearts. And I think um, artists have always played a really critical role in documenting and reflecting back Mm -hmm. ourselves to ourselves. Um, And, you know, for us, that's where how this sort of project and this idea evolved.
0: I mean... Just uh, on illustration and and art as a genre, maybe Mm. you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be back in Australia and how you came into this project as well because is this a exhibition, is this kind of exhibition something you've done before?
1: No. (laughs) It's the first show I've ever produced. No, it it really came about because I really wanted to get the files out there. So this whole endeavour wasn't about my trajectory as an artist or whatever. It was about how do I spread this strategically with as many people as possible Um, and yeah through luck and a lot of work it's where it is now yep
2: there's something very powerful, as you say, about the capacity of, of art to create empathy and emotional connectedness. Mm. And, the, and the, the thing that's so striking reading, reading these files is the dehumanisation of this process mm. of offshore detention. And mm. as you say, they're just ordinary people with lives and loves and losses just like anybody else. But yep. the sort of coolness and the detachedness of the files themselves as if they're a number yeah, is very striking, and so the process of getting artists to sort of um, maybe tease out that cool mm-hmm. relationship and and detachedness and bring emotion and empathy back into their stories is yeah. is a very telling yeah, one. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, each redacted that you see in the file, there's a human name, mm. um, and they're written by you know, the staff, the architecture of the system. So they are official, uh, you know, the, the official language is somewhat impenetrable, but when you break through those barriers, you're left with really human stories of suffering. And each artist's response is a practice in empathy. So they're empathising with the person behind that story. And then there's another level of empathy that happens when the audience, mm. then through that artwork, empathises with that person's experience. Um, yeah, so I suppose that's at the core of what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah.
0: And what? How did you go about finding the artists to engage with this material?
1: Oh, geez, it was quite a, a convoluted process. I mean, it it began. I think the f- the first artist we approached was Abdul Abdullah, who's a friend, and we're, uh, Daniel and I had sort of. I mean, we'd we'd shop this idea around because it is. It's not a... I don't know. It's a It's a very delicate subject, you know. We we're essentially asking people to illustrate trauma. So we did have a lot of conversations with um, refugee support groups and former refugee, or refugees and um, a number of different people to gauge their opinions. And then when we felt everybody was supportive from the get-go and then when we felt it was an idea that could have wings, then we started asking our friends first. So I asked Abdul, who's an incredible painter and you know multifaceted artist and thinking it was a bit of a long shot because I've obviously never done anything like this again but within an hour he'd written back going yeah how do I get involved and then I think um, from that we started approaching a few other artists and then our team grew we um, Georgie Bright from Human Rights Watch came on and partnered with us and Mona um, Saris, who is the Ex-Chair of Human Rights Watch, she came on board as well and she's an amazing patron of the arts with connections to galleries. So we started to approach galleries. We started to approach friends of friends. I cornered Ben Quilty at a party. You know, it just a whole bunch of different strategies to... Build the fire. and by the end of it, people are asking to be involved. Penny Byrne came on; she'd heard about it through Ben and was like, "Please, <laughs> I've done all this for so long, and her work has dealt with this since like you know 2010. We've got some of her works in there. Um, so yeah, it's uh, been a collective mass sort of effort.
0: And what was that Human Rights Watch partnership? Uh, how did that work?
1: Um, they've well, information. Um, they want to s- spread awareness in the same way and they saw that um, by backing this project they needed another angle because you know traditional awareness raising endeavours it's still going on what's happening there is still going on not enough people are engaging with this information so they are looking for ways to innovate and find new ways to engage new audiences and Georgie Bright um, is a lovely person and one of the um, she's one of the leaders of Human Rights Watch here and just saw an opportunity and they've been an incredible support.
0: You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3.
2: What was the process for a number of the artists? Did they they choose a file to respond to in particular, an individual file, and then they responded artistically?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, And actually, I think for a lot of the artists, choosing one file to respond to was a really hard task. Because we gave them the database. All the files were already published on the Guardian's database. It's searchable. You can look through year. You can look through incident types. So am I searching by sexual abuse, threatened self-harm, actual self-harm? It's 2,000. It's a lot. Oh. Mm. So I think each artist, yes, I mean, they spent time on the site. And it, basically everybody came back to me and goes, how do I choose one? But everybody did because everybody felt like, you know, collectively the wor- the works pay Testament to the overall horror, but it was really important that each artist chose one file, one human story, so that we saw the individual responses, mm. the individual stories in each one. The artists in this show are like some of the most incredible voices in Australian art, and I think that's part of the power of the show as well. It is really um, a collective solidarity of Australia's leading art figures saying, this is what's happening, please look, and this shouldn't be happening. What can we do? Did the artists talk about, to you, I mean,
2: were you sort of there to be, did you debrief them in a sense? I mean, what was your role? Was it beyond curator? It's such a a laden topic and presumably they needed to talk about the files that they were reading to you know, others around them.
1: Yeah, there have been a lot of conversations and um, I spoke with a lot of artists in great depth about the files that they were responding to and the stories and and just, you know, yeah, you do just need to debrief a little bit. Mm. Um, I think it's uh, particularly when the artworks were being delivered and when all the artists came to sort of see the show, I think they really enjoyed, well... I'm not sure enjoyed is the term, but you could see them talking to one another about their stories and sharing those experiences. And I think, yeah, it's been quite a profound thing to go through. Um, And, yeah, I think, I mean, even our audience, watching them come through the doors and walk out again, everybody leaves looking like they need a cup of tea and a hug. You know, it's just, it is, however you engage with the files, you can't help but be moved by them.
0: I mean, that's a really... Is there a process to pick up, you know, the kind of emotion that um, is generated by attending an event? Um, that, that, so, so audiences that see... The pieces yeah. have a way to act as a consequence. I mean, are you working with Human Rights Watch around those kinds of initiatives?
1: Well, what we've um, the way that we've tackled that is to build a website. So it's our own version of the Guardian's database of the files. So we've taken all two thousand files and we've put them on a new website. But the difference here is that the public can choose a file to illustrate themselves and then illust- and then upload that artwork to the da- to our website and then share that with their communities so it's a, a way for everybody from any walk of life who wants to sh- play a part in individualizing these stories humanizing them and sharing them uh yeah it's a way for them to get involved and spread that message and that's had a massive response since we launched it so obviously you have to tell us what the website address is <laughs> uh, yeah Or we can't see
2: dot com go there <laughs> and uh, What's um, can you think of off the top of your head a memorable um, interpretation by a member of the community of a file and what that yeah. file
1: is? Gosh, I mean, this um, woman Anna Mold submitted a huge embroidered um, uh, rug. About the file was that ki- the children couldn't sleep because cockroaches were crawling all across them their tent in the night and crawling over their bodies in the night. And she created this huge embroidered artwork with this um, the the tents all embroidered in the in the foreground. The cage, you know, a couple of plastic yard chairs there, and then this incredible constellation of stars with a cockroach flying through it. I mean, the thing is exquisite, but also so. Dark and moving, and yeah, when Daniel and I saw that being uploaded, we just went, Whoa, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm mean, so much effort has gone into it. These aren't throwaway sketches, people have spent hours of their time engaging. And you know, so many people have written to me after they've put in files saying it's just so good to do something. I know that it's not, we're not saying that art is saving the world or changing this, but spreading awareness can only help, right. Mm. I am a caseworker on Nauru, today at 4.25pm, I spoke with one of the refugees, her name is Redacted, Redacted, has done something to herself.
0: Listeners, you are here listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. To download this show, of course, head to 2SCR.com or your favourite podcast app and search for Glam City. This is a show made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2 And please, if you like what you hear, leave us a rating. Hit those five stars.
2: We are very lucky to have respected collector, curator and creator. Dr. Jean Sherman with us. Jean, welcome.
3: Thank you so much. Lovely to be here.
2: Jean was the Director and Proprietor of Sherman Galleries for 21 years. She's also Adjunct Professor at UNSW Art and Design, a member of the Tate International Council and a board member of the Australian Institute of Art History. In 2007, Dr. Sherman created the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation, SCAF, and last year, I believe, um, you also created
3: Sky. That's right.
2: Before we get on to <laughs> the latest. Um, can you tell us a little bit about SCAF, the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation, which took up a lot of your time yes,
3: for many well, years? Yes, uh, for 10 years. Uh, to, uh, as you said, Sherman Galleries, which was a commercial gallery, uh, was a 21 year project. I started off as an academic. That's why the doctor, uh, the PhD, uh, you know, gave me that title. And I use it because women, I think, need to assert uh, what they've done in ways that they didn't traditionally not bother to do. They didn't think it was appropriate to do. And so I've always been very assertive about that. It took six years for me to do that doctorate with two small children and a full-time job. And there is no way that I'm going to be called Mrs. Sherman um, <laughs> after that effort. So, uh, so you know, just to put, put that in context. But then I moved on as Australia pivoted towards Asia and I was teaching French literature. It became necessary for me to find another job and I was not the only one in the French department at the time at Sydney University and I think I was the youngest member by some years. We had uh, 20 staff members from professor down to the lowliest uh, tutor and... uh During the course of the five years that I was here, we went from 20 to uh, 8. So 12 people um, needed to leave and find other opportunities for the simple reason that Australia was no longer focusing on Europe as and on France, as uh, England traditionally did, as a sort of space I guess for contemplation for education, and in terms of language for the learning of a second language and so I, I uh, went to Ascom school um, I was head of modern languages and we introduced Japanese and Indonesian. Uh, the two sort of hit languages mm. of that period. Chinese, of course, has been added now. And I was there for almost six years until my HSC students left. And I just felt that that was not the career path that I wanted. And, uh, and that, you know, if I was going to move forward uh, in any meaningful way, the end of that road would have been to become a headmistress of a school, which is not really what was on my mind so uh, I opened the gallery, my husband became successful, gave me a little bit of cushioning financially so that I didn't feel as though you know, Mm. we were risking bread on the table and um, I opened the gallery in 1986 21 years later with a still successful husband and probably more successful By that time, I opened the foundation, and that was a 10-year project, 37 uh, individual commissions, um, mostly artists from Asia, uh, the Asia-Pacific region, including Australia, Mm. uh, and covering, you know, China, Japan, Indonesia, Vietnam, Cambodia, the Pacific Islands, Samoa, just the whole range yeah. of Asia, every, everything that you would put into Asia, India, uh, a big part of it. So, um, just to take a step back for a moment, uh, that was what I did in the commercial gallery, and then even more intensively, but not in a commercial. Uh, Sense or at a commercial level in the foundation. Mm.
2: And so just over the course of your lifetime, Mm. you telling that little story of starting with French literature and ending with a kind of (laughs) view to Asia, you've sort of traversed a shifting lens of Australia, really, haven't you? Absolutely.
3: I I've, I've followed the arc yeah. that Australia uh, sort of defined for me. There was a pathway, and at uh, initially I saw uh, this change in direction. Australia, the country's change in direction, as a disaster because I'd spent twelve years in formal education in one category with one goal and one career path, and that shifted outside of my control and outside of everybody's control. But I decided to go with the new arc.
2: Um so you had this incredible career managing Sherman Galleries. Yes. And then you've had two very interesting cultural but also philanthropic ventures with the Sherman Contemporary Art Foundation and now um now the Sherman Center for Culture and Ideas. And Ideas. Yes. What prompted you to move into some of these I guess as you said less commercial yet no less culturally important
3: Yes. They weren't less commercial than not commercial. They're not commercial. No, there's no commercial element in what I have been doing since the end of 2007. So, look, I think, remember I started in education, which is why I began at the beginning, at least at the beginning of my professional life. And uh, I I wasn't intending to be in the business of selling. You know, I was in the business of teaching and researching and uh, whatever money came in, came in came in through my salary at the university. So when I was, and then I went to the school and the same applied. I was teaching and the girls were there. It was a private girls' school, wonderful school. And um, there was no question of selling anything. It was simply sharing knowledge. And then I moved into the commercial gallery and that was all about selling because the artists uh, were dependent on the income. I didn't need the money because, as I said, my husband built up this very successful funds management business. And just to add a little caveat there, they um, raised billions of dollars in North America, the US and Canada, Little bit in Europe, but main focus was on America to invest in the Asia Pacific region. So they followed that arc as well. Mm. Uh, you know, it seems silly to fight against something that is so obviously logical. We were we're here in the Asia Pacific region. We have our roots elsewhere, but our future's here. So when, from a government point of view, the shift was articulated, it felt right. Mm. It felt hurtful, uh, and it felt a Pity, in a way, and I was very upset at the beginning. But it felt logical, and I'm a an analytical, logical person. And I thought, well, you know, you go with the flow. You can't fight something that seems so bleeding obvious. Yeah. And so, moving then into uh, Sherman Galleries, I was plunged into a world where I was surrounded by a group of needy artists. All artists are needy. All human beings are needy, but artists are particularly needy. And I decided. I to focus then and there on artists from the Asia-Pacific region, including Australia. So I didn't show anyone from Europe or from America. Remember, now it seems more obvious, but at the time, people saw art as coming from the Western canon and uh, in Asia, traditional arts, you know, bronzes and... Uh, Textiles, perhaps from Indonesia, to, uh, traditional textiles and so on, with the focus. Uh, nobody was thinking of contemporary art from Asia, you know, in the 70s. Mao Zedong uh, was still alive until 1976. I mean, China was a closed door India was not uh, what it is today an open economy you know so i, I don't say i was the only one there was a, you know there were a number of people and in australia the main big institution that was pivoting in the same direction huge institution compared to my tiny little gallery uh, was the queensland art gallery in mm. brisbane And the revolutionary director, Doug Hall, now retired, you know, said, we're in Asia. We better start uh, thinking Mm -hmm. about it. Where are the artists? Mm -hmm. Are there artists? The Gang of Four was demolished, made to disappear uh, in China. Madame Mao, you know, who was a, a real tyrant really, and no other way to describe her, uh, she had gone and uh, Xiaoping had uh, established the open door policy in China and so things started opening up so you could go in and look and research and the Queensland Art Gallery really did it in a big way. And I was one of the small mm. fish in that mm. in that pond.
2: You really embraced the Asia-Pacific yes. Asia region and also, by, as you say, by doing that, you're questioning. That traditional canon. Exactly. And it's not simply about moving to the Asia-Pacific. It's also questioning the content of that canon, exactly. isn't it? And one of the things that we're interested um, here at Glam City is history of design and fashion yes. in particular. You've got a very unique take on the history of fashion. Why is it important to think about and learn about the history of fashion?
3: I think it's critically important, and I'll tell you why, for a number of reasons. One, I think that fashion in many people's minds, up until fairly recently it has started changing, uh, has been about shopping. It's about clothes you wear, going shopping, all this fast fashion that, you know, is, is really like fast food it's 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 non-nourishing it's non-sustainable it's uh, hurting the environment and the workers are paid a pittance they not paid a living wage in countries like Bangladesh and elsewhere and uh, for the sake of uh, somebody here or anywhere in the developed world to be able to buy a jacket that costs $30 every two weeks no one needs a jacket every two weeks And it's people like the Kardashians, this whole celebrity cult that promotes shopping, shopping, shopping. So people have been, I suppose, lulled into thinking that fashion is shopping. It's not. Fashion is self-expression. It can be. And it's also an industry that is uh, underpinned by so many different elements, and these are the... Elements and the layers that I hope to explore through Sky. And so what are we doing? We're exploring every layer of fashion. It's a five-year project, so we're going to do five fashion hubs and five architecture hubs, fashion in April and architecture in October. You know, it's let, let's uh, sort of just a, a document or detail um, what some of the layers are. There's fashion as craftsmanship, there's fashion photography, there's fashion as textiles, there's the materials that underpin the textiles, they've got to be grown or fabricated if they're chemically constructed. There's fashion as ethics, Uh, the rights of the work, there's fashion as film, there's fashion in literature, all writers dress their characters in one way or another for a reason. Uh, There's fashion as self-expression, There's fashion as costume. There's fashion that relates to the history of women in the world. And if you just look at what we're wearing in the studio now, it says something about our era.
2: You can say that I've really dressed up for the occasion, Jean. Um. But but it still
3: says something about (laughs) our era. The fact that you come to work like this. If you were a 19th century woman, you wouldn't be able to work at all because you'd have a bustle and you wouldn't be able to sit down on the chair on which you're sitting and you'd have a corset Both of us would, and we could hardly breathe, let alone eat. So, you know, it says so many things Mm. about history, about women's roles in history, uh, the burqa the veil. You know, there's fashion as faith, there's fashion in the Catholic Church and as pomp and ceremony. It goes on and on. Have you
2: always been interested in this or is it something that's come to you through, I guess, the artwork that you've been doing? I'm
3: interested in culture, Anna. You know, and I see fashion as as much part of culture, if you take it seriously and you don't think of it as going to the shops every two weeks to buy a new jacket that you don't need, that falls apart after five minutes goes into uh, the ocean, clogs everything up. Uh, the dyes uh, come out because the whole thing's made so cheaply. The workers are paid $20 a month. You know, it, it's yeah. just not necessary.
2: It is a culture in its own right, though, isn't it? Even if we can critique it, that, that consumerist it, culture is a type of... It
3: it's, is the today's culture, but I think we're going to have to reverse it. And we're becoming aware of that. I mean, some of us are more aware than others, but you know, everything starts somewhere. What was the impetus or the inspiration for the Sherman Centre for Culture and Ideas? Knowledge sharing is really what I'm most interested in, and uh, that goes with my interest in cross-cultural understanding. And I've chosen to focus on the Asia-Pacific because that's where we are, and I think it's so important to get to know our neighbours. I'm a bilingual speaker in French and English, and I know what knowing another language brings to my life and to anybody's life because of all the years I, I was teaching. I taught for 17 years, either at a school or a university.
2: Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the uh, Sherman Centre for Cultural Ideas. That's Sky, for those of you who have been listening. Um, go onto the website, as uh, as Jean Sherman has been saying, um, book tickets, and also you know just have a look to see what's going on and, and what's possible in this glam space. You've been listening to Glam City on 2SER.com. You can also search for us on your favourite podcast app and you can hit us up on Twitter. You'll find my absent host, Tamson, under cap and gown when she's back and me under at Anna Hope Clark. This podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History with the support of 2SER 107.3. And if you want to get in touch, please send us an email to glamcity at 2SER.com. Thank you so much to Dr. Jean Sherman for joining us today, talking about all things glam in the world of design and, uh, and architecture history. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you so much, Anna.